following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Good morning, everyone. We welcome you to Fellowship Bible Church this morning. Let's turn our Bibles to the prophet Ezekiel again this morning. To the prophet Ezekiel. After I finish reading, I'll invite the men to come forward and we will take up the offering and uh, J.L. will play the offertory after, after our scripture reading. And it's in chapter 9 of Ezekiel, another rather short chapter, but one that I think you might be able to put yourself kind of into. Imagine that you exist, existed in a time in which God was going to pour out his judgment on your nation And uh, which group of people would you be in? It says in Ezekiel 9, Then he called out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his battle axe in his hand. One man among them was clothed with linen and had a writer's inkhorn at his side. They went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub, where it had been, to the threshold of the temple. Now that's a significant statement, even though you might not know. If you were reading Ezekiel around 8 and 9 and then beyond, I would like you to pay attention to the glory of the Lord and where it is. Where it is. Here it's gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. It's moving. The glory of God, he is moving. And he called to the man clothed with linen who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. And the Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. To the others, he said in my hearing, go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eye spare, nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women. But do not come near anyone on whom is the mark. And begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the temple. Then he said to them, defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. And they went out and killed in the city. Remember, Ezekiel's seeing a vision here of what's going to occur in his dear home city. So it was that while they were killing them, I was left alone and I fell on my face and cried out and said, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in pouring out your fury on Jerusalem? Then he said to me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great, and the land is full of bloodshed in a city full of perversity. For they say, The Lord has forsaken the land, and the Lord does not see. And as for me also, my eye will neither spare, nor will I have pity, but I will recompense their deeds on their own head. Just then the man clothed with linen, who had the inkhorn at his side, reported back and said, I have done as you commanded me. God's uh, sparing the lives of his remnant in the midst of that judgment. Thank God for those words. 
Let's turn our Bibles to Titus, please. We're at the end of the book today, Titus and chapter 3, Paul's closing words, and they are of some interest to us. I don't want to start right there, though. I want to introduce our message by reviewing just for a moment some of the application that we experienced or saw last week. Last time in chapter 3, verses 8 through 11, we saw that Paul tells Titus to tell the church and thus us that we are to be very careful to maintain good works. And he's going to say that very same thing again. But we saw that in chapter 3, verse 8, where he said, This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. You might remember I gave you an assignment last Sunday, didn't I? That assignment was to look for opportunities to do good works and to participate in doing of them. So I pray that uh, you did and will and will continue to do that because it's an ongoing homework assignment. There are no graduates from this homework assignment. We are about doing them all the time that we are uh, able to do so. But the apostle reminds us that not only are we to have good works characterize our lives, but we're also to avoid useless contentions and divisive people. Useless contentions and divisive people. And as I think I indicated, we have to be on our toes about this matter, about these kinds of things, especially about divisive matters, about useless arguments and wranglings over words that are often told uh, to us, as we looked last time in several scriptures in First and Second Timothy, uh, particularly and in Titus, and the, and the whole tenor of the rest of Scripture, uh, foolish talk, Ephesians chapter four, and other things like that are just not in place for us as Christians. And I know that uh, in our own church, we have uh, seen or heard expressed or thinly veiled. Uh, not so maybe outwardly expressed, but thinly veiled divisions over things that we experience in our own culture. I thank God that as far as I know, this is not a, a matters of biblical doctrine per se, but of application and practice to things like uh, what has consumed us all. And we can't hardly have a conversation about uh, life without talking about COVID and vaccines and the pandemic and, and all of those sorts of things, as if they were something new and unknown to humanity. I mean, time travel back 100 years to 1918 and, and ask them if this is something new. Not new at all. In fact, they suffered much worse death per, per population than we did, by far, by far, multiple times more. And and we have forgotten that people do die. People do die in this life, and in some years it's worse than other years. We had a particularly bad year last year. We have, uh, you know, had a little better year this year, but still, uh, eventually, uh, you, you can, you know, you can only slow, perhaps, the uh, progression of death, but you cannot stop it. You cannot stop it, and so. We have these, uh, you know, either expressed or unexpressed divisions over things like that, what best practices we should use about politics and about other things that I'm sure that I'm forgetting at the moment or didn't think about over the course of my study in this passage. 
But not only in our church, but in our nation, we have deep divisions. In fact, I saw a headline that said that one notable military person believes that division is what he fears the most for our nation, not terrorism, not lack of supply for the military. It's an internal division that is the most dangerous thing. Why? The Lord taught us 2,000 years ago that a house divided against itself cannot stand. You cannot, you, you simply cannot overcome that law of nature, if I could say it that way. It's just the way that it is. Once a strong nation becomes 50-50 and they beat each other up, there's nothing left, and so something else can come in and cause a problem. Division is the biggest enemy of our nation, not economic problems, not terrorism or anything else. These divisions are fomented by political operators who want such divisions to gain political advantage and leverage change in the national governance and in the social fabric. It's as simple as I can put it uh, in a very concise manner. God hates this. God hates this, and we need to make sure that we are not playing any part in it. If we're playing a part, it is to solve that problem, not to create more of that problem. And yes, we are going to have to tolerate people with different opinions and different beliefs, different life experiences, different uh, set of uh, data that they're dealing with, and those do exist. We do not know everything and neither do those on the other side of some issue or other that we're dealing with. Now, that's most certainly easier said than done to maintain unity in the face of deep differences. And this is in part because each of us, quote, knows that we're right, and the other side is stupid or doesn't know anything or uh, is immoral or whatever. And I'm not saying that no differences are significant. Don't get me to say that, okay? But we have to understand something here as Christians. I believe that if we kept our focus on the Lord and what our mission is, these things would tend to correct themselves in the life of the church or at least not rise to a level of significance where it becomes a problem to cause hateful division. We might even end up ignoring some of those issues, like I think would be good for some of us, or uh, realizing that they're foolishness and should not occupy space in our brains when we need to be occupied with other more important things, trusting the sovereign Lord, preaching his word, uh, living righteous lives. Uh, that's, that's a mouthful enough right there to keep most of us busy, isn't it? Besides getting involved in all of these other Divisions. We have to remember that our hope is not in political ideologies or structures, religions, militaries, financial systems, or even in what I think some of us rely on, luck. What do I mean by that? Well, some of these things aren't going to touch me. You know, we won't have a 9-11 that happens in Ann Arbor, hopefully, because it's, you know, we're kind of off the radar a little bit, a smaller city or whatever, not New York or Los Angeles or Chicago. And so we rely on luck, but our help doesn't come from luck. Our help comes from the Lord. Our trust is in Christ. No matter what the external circumstances are, no matter how good or bad, no matter what the divisions are, 
We focus on doing good in the name of Christ, and as Paul says, avoiding stupid differences and divisive people. That's what his message is. And it has an application to us, as I've been trying to show you today, as we review those last verses. The texts that we've read and learned about in Titus, written nearly 2,000 years in the past, touch our lives today just as much as they did centuries ago when they were first penned. The Apostle Paul ends his letter with some of his own real-life circumstances that we're going to read about just now. And uh, sometimes I, too, think we, we kind of read Paul with, um, with maybe the wrong kind of imagination. We read it with the imagination that we'd read a book of fiction. But the reality is we need to read it with the kind of imagination that we would read a history book with. To put ourselves into the place of the Apostle Paul and Titus and these men that he's going to mention, these are real people doing real things real travel, real difficulties, real, as Paul would experience uh, just after he penned Second Timothy, real death for the cause of Christ. It was as real as it gets, this life of the Apostle Paul and this ministry. And, and it wasn't you know, some kind of thing that's so far off that we can't touch it. We experience things like this ourselves all the time. Read it with me in verse number 12. When he says, when I send Artemis to you or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste that they may lack nothing. And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Paul lists four people who are ministering with him in verses 12 and 13. He does this in other portions. You can look at his apostolic partners in Colossians 4, see some of them mentioned in Ephesians, uh, Philemon, uh, Philippians. You see these ones here. Now, these are interesting just because they appear in Scripture, and uh, we see a little bit about the dynamic of Paul's work methodology. We kind of think of the Apostle Paul as if he's a lone ranger. You know, he gets on a boat and he goes somewhere and he preaches the gospel and a bunch of people get saved, church gets started, he goes on to the next place. That's not the case at all. The Apostle Paul used the same model that Jesus used, and that was a team model, a model in which multiple men were working and perhaps their wives and families with them in the church. <clears throat> they didn't all get the headlines. Paul did. He was the especially called apostle of Christ. But these men were working with Paul, and they would go here and there and to and fro, carrying out ministry that was necessary for the churches. He starts with Artemis. He's only mentioned here in the scriptures. Perhaps he was a fellow minister who could provide furlough coverage, I call it, as we do today. He says, when I send Artemis to you or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me. So he's saying, I'm going to send a guy there, and you're going to come this way. And often what happens when a minister is on a mission field and he has to leave, he has to find somebody to substitute for him, to replace what he's doing. And Paul has given Titus an assignment in the island of Crete. Perhaps it was not yet done. And Paul says, I, you know, I, basically, I understand that, and you're going to need some help there to assist with that work, especially if you have to leave and spend what is going to, we'll see here, is perhaps the entire winter 
traveling and being with the Apostle Paul before he carries on with the work that he's been called to do. Tychicus is the second in the list. Paul was unsure if he would send Artemis or Tychicus. There was some travel issues there, perhaps health issues that caused them to have to think, okay, I'm going to send this one or this one. He was from Asia Minor, we're taught in Acts 20, verse number 4, this fellow. Paul had picked up a number of people along the way, Asia Minor being where Ephesus and Colossae were. He also, uh, remember, picked up Timothy. Remember that? In Asia Minor as well, and Sopater of Berea and uh, Secundus and some of these other men that he u- had had to used in his team and ministry. And Tychicus was one from Asia Minor. He was a dear brother, Paul says elsewhere in Ephesians, a faithful servant of the Lord. He was a messenger that Paul used to convey messages from his prison experience to various churches. We see that in Ephesians and also in Colossians. That would have been a privilege, wouldn't it, to be a right-hand man for the Apostle Paul? Paul says, hey, this letter has got to make it there. No pressure. It's only going to be in the Bible for the rest of time. Just get it there, okay? That's when we say you've got one job to do and do it. Yeah, so Tychicus uh, carrying to Ephesus, to Colossae, involved with the Philemon letter as well. Later, he was sent to Ephesus at the end of Paul's life. That's in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse number 12. I have sent to Ephesus. So even though Titus occurs after 2 Timothy in the order of your Bible, it was written between 1 and 2 Timothy. Just make sure you have that in your mind as far as the timeline goes. I'll mention more of that in a moment. Then you have a third, Zenus. Zenus, he's a lawyer. Uh, But he was more than a lawyer because he was a Christian lawyer. He was a Christian as well. The journey with Apollos uh, that he's mentioning here is not specified as to destination or purpose. It was mutually understood by Paul and Titus what it was. Uh, They had an understanding kind of underneath the the letter here that formed context for it that we don't have. And so this indicates that the men were communicating quite regularly with one another, even though they were at quite a distance from each other. And then Apollos, fourth Apollos. Apollos is a man who has often uh, intrigued me. I think of him, he kind of appears suddenly out of nowhere, out of actually out of Alexandria, but on the apostolic scene of ministry, and he begins preaching an incomplete gospel, but very, very powerfully. He knew the Old Testament like the back of his hand. He knew very well the scriptures. And once he was brought up to speed by Aquila and Priscilla, who taught him the way of God a little bit more accurately, filled in some blanks for him, he was immediately elevated to a place of a primary minister of the gospel around the Mediterranean world, his name was known. I mean, he is a famous preacher of the word. Uh, The Apostle Paul, in fact, uh, asked if he would go to Corinth at one time. He had been there, and uh, Apollos couldn't. Why? Probably because his itinerary was full. He was going everywhere that he could preach the word and, and evangelize the population. He's mentioned in Acts 18 several times, in Acts 19, and more than half a dozen times in 1 Corinthians. There in Corinth, he had become so, I could say, famous that he's 
become kind of the head of a faction in the church. Not that he was heading a faction, but that the people were elevating him to a place thinking that he was something special, and they were, they were Apollos Christians. Some others, you know, Paul Christians, others Jesus Christians. But Paul rebukes them for that and tells them, you're not any of those things, you're Christians, you're Christ ones. All of us are in Christ Powerful preacher, probably highly educated. I take that from the mention of Alexandria. Alexandria was a city of books, a huge library there, well-known in history, uh, and a place where many uh, smart people came out of. He began to have an itinerant ministry of the gospel. Titus was told to send these two men both quickly with haste and with all the supplies that they needed to carry out whatever mission that they were on. We have here a, an, an example of what church ministry looks like, that there is people movement in church ministry. Uh, we know that we send out missionaries from our church and they uh, go out to different places around the world. We've even sent out our own members a couple of times in our church's history, and we hope to do that again as the Lord provides. Um, but all this movement back and forth, and you might say, well, why, why is it necessary? And, and sometimes uh, people do travel a little too much, but other times, you know, us who are homebodies, I speak not, it's from some personal feeling of that, but many of us are that way. We don't like to travel too far off our, you know, off our uh, trails that we're used to, well, we wonder why they, why they travel so far and so, so many times and it's so expensive and, and all of this. They are doing the work of the Lord, reporting to churches, going to far away fields to plant churches where there are none. I mean, I think we don't understand the dearth that some places have of good churches. Frankly, in southeast Michigan, we have almost a glut relative to the rest of the world. If you go out west to farther out in the Midwest, you won't find much in certain places. If you go to the northeast or you go to the far northwest in our own land, it's basically unevangelized territory, which is sad to even utter with our lips. In this land, unevangelized, less than 2% evangelical in some of these areas. It's a sad thing. You've got to go there. You can't do it. Uh, remotely, you know, on the computer or whatever. You've got to go and make relationships with people and preach the gospel to them. And that's what these men were doing. We don't have to know all the details of it. They just were doing that. Titus is also asked to journey to Nicopolis. In verse number 12, Paul says, Be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Earlier today, our brother talked about Obadiah, and he analyzed his name a little bit. And I'll do something similar with Nicopolis. You might uh, hear the word Nike or Nike, which means a victory. And polis is the root for city. It's a city of victory. And I put a footnote there at the bottom. The city was found, founded in 29 B.C. by Caesar Augustus in his commemoration of victory over in 31 B.C., over Antony and Cleopatra at the Battle of Actium nearby. This is real history here. Nicopolis. There were several places called Nicopolis, but probably this was the most well-known one, which was in 
uh, Greece, northwest of Corinth, if you can think about in, in, in your mind, uh, let's see if I can get the orientation right. If you have Asia Minor over here, and you have the boot of Italy over here, you have the Mediterranean down here. In the middle, you've got the peninsula on which there's Macedonia and Greece. And so if you were to draw a line from Rome to Ephesus, right underneath that line would be Nicopolis on the west coast of the peninsula that contains Macedonia and Greece, at that time at least, in your Bible map. You can look that up if you have a study Bible in the back there with the maps. But this is Nicopolis. And I, I frankly have overlooked this, study, this city in my studies. I didn't go into great depth on the demographics of it uh, this time, but I've overlooked it because it doesn't appear anywhere else in the Bible. This is the only mention of that place. But it gives us the clue that the Apostle Paul, after his first imprisonment, was spending time in this city called Nicopolis ministering. And we don't know exactly what all happened there. If there was a church, certainly Paul was evangelizing, no question about that. But uh, very kind of um, a murky situation with this particular city. We do know from Crete to Nicopolis would be a journey of nearly 500 miles. So Paul is asking Titus to embark on an arduous trip of, of 500 miles from where he was over land and especially over sea to get there. Now, was he supposed to finish his work before going to Nicopolis or pass the rest of it on to the other helpers that Paul sent his way? We do not know about that and uh, why this particular movement of Titus was necessary. We could speculate, but there's really not a lot of profit in doing that. Uh, We just see the work uh, going on. Paul probably wrote this in the mid-60s, uh, A.D. He was at Nicopolis after his first imprisonment. He was there for at least a couple of years in Rome, and then before his execution, which I uh, put the date around 67, plus or minus. Uh, but he was planning to spend the winter there, perhaps November, December, January, February. Not good time, perhaps, to travel for him, um, and uh, he wanted Titus to come there to speak with him and minister together, apparently. Then we go on to verse 14. Paul says, once again, kind of almost almost repetitively, you feel like he keeps saying this stuff about good works. Well, why? Because it's necessary to be said. He says, let ours, let our people also learn to maintain good works to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. Learn to maintain good works. Learning here is not the idea of book learning. It's the learning of practice and experience of apprenticeship, of internship, of actually getting your hands dirty, doing the work. This is not learning from a page on, of print. It's learning by doing. The translation to, to maintain, which I have here in my Bible, or perhaps you have engage, I think is a little weak. The translation would be better, uh, devote yourselves, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. That needs to be like almost an addiction. It fits better, this idea. It means that we not only show an interest and a concern for good works, but we take what we might say a leading role in doing them in our communities. Learn by experience 
to maintain good works. And what are these good works? Well, they're work and they're good. Okay? It doesn't mean they're easy. They are work. They may take you energy and exhaustion and toil and be uh, not like the vacation that you want to take sometimes. They are work and they are good. They're not bad. What do these things do? Well, the scripture says we maintain these, we engage, we devote ourselves to them in order to meet urgent needs. Urgent needs. We're supplying, the text says, necessary needs. That's almost redundant itself as well. Necessary needs. Things that are lacking in the lives of other people. And hopefully it's not too difficult for us to ascertain what those necessary needs are. If something is a necessity. We're not called to maintain good works to meet luxuries. We're not called to maintain good works or to devote ourselves to good works in order to, to, to fill unnecessary wants. Not unnecessary wants, but necessary needs is what Paul says. There's too much legitimate need in the world for us to be consumed with what we want all the time. You understand what I mean? The depth of need is enough for us to find something to do about it. The goal, here it is, that they may not be unfruitful, the end of verse 14, not to live a useless life, but rather to live a productive life. God is concerned, yes, with productivity, among other aspects of sanctification. We do have the power to produce things. If we're not producing, we are living unproducingly, unproductively. Obviously, this is not the same thing as GDP and labor force productivity that you read about in the financial news sections of your news websites or newspapers. But I can't say that it's entirely disconnected from that either. God has made man to work. It's necessary to work. It's good to work. Adam and Eve worked in the garden. It's fulfilling to work. It's productive to work. And when we work a job, we can earn a living and have finances to do other good works. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, that he prays that they, the people in Corinth would have everything that they need in order to do an abundance of good works. And so if you're praying for you know, the lottery to come your way, just to consume it on yourself, wrong answer, okay? Would you consume it on good works or would you consume it on yourself? Don't play the lottery, by the way. I'm not advocating that. I'm just saying... You know, you see, you see those big signs up there, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. Do good with what you have. You should not be dreaming about doing good with something you don't have when you have all kinds of stuff you do have in order to do good. You have time and money. You have skills and talents. You have people. You have ideas. You can do good things. But working is a good thing, working a job. Uh, especially a, a needful job, a job of building things that are necessary, caring for people who need help 
and so on and so forth. Those are good things. Now, God began, you know, God's about good works. He began a good work in you, didn't he? And he's going to finish that good work. God's about good works that way. We're called to be fruitful in every good work, Colossians 1.10. We must be prepared and fit vessels for every good work, 2 Timothy 2.21. Scripture equips us for every good work. Remember, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped, fully furnished to every good work. Desire for the office of a bishop is a good work, 1 Timothy 3.1. Women are called to be diligent in every good work in order to be qualified to be on the role of widows in the church. Of course, we must not be like those who falsely profess to know God. And as Titus said, the book of Titus, Paul said to him, who are actually disqualified for every good work. Good works. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. If you don't know that the Bible has a lot to say about good works, You have missed the boat. The apostle closes his letter then with a short passing of greetings. He says, all who are with me greet you and greet those for us who love us in the faith. So this two-way, we're greeting and we want to pass more greetings to those that are there from our group to you and from us to all of those folks that are with you. Evidently, the letter, although to Titus, is expected to be shared with some co-workers. It appears that from this, just this, where it says, greet those who love us in the faith, there were some co-workers there with Titus as well. Not just Paul with his co-workers, but Titus with his, leading perhaps a small missionary team and training young men to come along with him and do the work. And Paul closes the letter with This word, grace be with you all. Amen. He wishes the divine grace upon those who are present with Titus, including the named recipient, Titus himself, of this letter. And I just exclaimed in my notes at the end how we need the grace of God. How we need the grace of God. And Paul is bestowing it in this prayer upon all of his readers. And we can take comfort in knowing that. That is for us as well. May God's grace be with you all, dear brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Thank God for his grace. Thank God for his grace. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to the conclusion of the letter of Paul the Apostle to Titus. And boy, we have learned a lot of things. And it has been hammered home in our hearts that we are to live godly in Christ Jesus. Whether we're older men or women or younger men or women or ministers of the gospel, we're to be examples, we're to live holy, 
We are to do good works if we're servants, if we're employees. Lord, we know that we do this because you have transformed us by your grace and the work of the gospel. You've begun that work in us. And these words are used as part of the training that we need to experience the completion of your work. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Help us to take the lessons from Titus and to put them into practice through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.